What was life like for you if you didn't accept that she'd gone? And I remember someone else speaking to me about counselling and even my GP giving me telephone numbers. I'm thinking, I just want to sleep. I didn't have the excitement that everybody did of coming to England. <sighs> I don't think I want to be here. I genuinely want to go back and try and help as many kids as possible. To be honest, it goes back to poverty and I think education is a way out of poverty. And if you give somebody an education, then you're getting to the bottom of resolving some of these challenges. Welcome to Inspired By, the show that brings you inspiring stories from inspiring entrepreneurs with a twist. Now, I believe that every successful entrepreneur and celebrity on this planet has an inspiring story and they have stories that they haven't yet told. Not because they don't want to tell the story, but because they haven't been asked the right questions. So my job on the show is to ask the real questions so that you get the real answers. Now, with that in mind, let's get started. Jennifer, welcome to the Inspired By Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Now, Jennifer, I know you quite well. Obviously, we've known each other for probably over a year now. Feels like it is flown by. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm very much aware that not many of our listeners or followers may have come across you before. Now, one of the things I find fascinating about what I know about you is that you kind of have two very big parts of your life, two different hats, if you will, two different roles. And I guess my question is, you're known as a HR consultant, HR expert, and very, very good at what you do in that. But you also have your own foundation, which is incredible how much you support mm -hmm. people. How does someone have an HR background, very corporate world, mm -hmm. and a foundation? Like, how do those two things come about in your life? I think, to be honest, both um, the outcome for both is impact, but from a different angle. So the foundation is more of a social impact. Mm. And um, just to dive a bit more into the foundation side, because that's the bit that people don't know about me, that came about as um, a result of trying to create a legacy for my late grandma, who sadly died in December um, 2017. So I credit my grandma for everything that I am today. Hopefully, all the good bits uh, and none of the negative side, negative side of me. So um, her death was unexpected. I mean, people say. She was aging. Did you not expect that she would die? I think death is one thing that we can all say is a guarantee. But I don't know how many people sitting at home counting, you know, the days of their loved ones until they, they passed on. So, no, I didn't really expect that. I um, was having a, a perfectly good day that particular day. I had literally ordered a Christmas tree. So I was going along to go and pick it. And um, I had this weird kind of feeling, kind of vibe of I don't quite feel myself, I don't quite feel well. So I got to my destination, pick up the Christmas tree, and I barely made it home. So I left the Christmas tree in the car, literally um, went inside the house and I went to lie down because I felt like I needed to lie down. And I had a feeling of calmness and peace when I did, and I went into a deep sleep. I think it was around about the time my grandma died. And I think maybe two hours or so later, I had um, a text message from um, my uncle to basically say, she's passed on. I think my brain shut down because there was a feeling of, no, 
the day before, um, I was talking to my auntie about calling her and speaking to her. And I had just delayed that. Um, and I thought I had enough time to have one more conversations with her. So my mind was playing tricks with me. And I think after about the initial shock, I was literally on the floor screaming. Um, I'm not quite sure why, but that was their reaction afterwards. And it's almost like a mask came on onto me afterwards to just internalize and shut down and behave like it's not happening. So that was what happening to me. Um, it's not happening. I'll have to see it for myself. There's no way. And and then there was the need to keep asking questions from people who were around her. What happened? What, what was she eating? Because she had had lunch, apparently, as I was told. And she said she was going to lie down. So she went into her room. And a moment later, she came out and said to my sister, I don't feel well. And my sister said in a split of a second, it's almost like she couldn't walk. And then she was struggling for oxygen. And um, I'm not sure why, because grief doesn't always make sense. But then I was asking, hang on, what was happening that day? What was the weather that day? Because she lives in Ghana, I live in the UK. And she's full asthma all her life. And I knew that one of the triggers of asthma is um, raining weather or bad weather. So I was asking her, what was the weather like? She's like, fine. I'm like, what else was happening that day? He was with her. What was she eating? What was in it? Where did you get her food from? Um, because I had a need to understand. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, and bizarrely, that was driving me forward. The more questions I ask, the more I go and do a research to try and understand, well, if there was oxygen in the, in the house, could they have saved her? Because she died so quickly before they could even get her to hospital. And because it was death at home, she had to be taken to the, host, um, to the police station for them to do their own investigation. So I'm like, no, something just isn't adding up. Something doesn't make sense here. Someone can't just have lunch. Literally, the lunch hasn't even digested. And then how do you just die? It, it just doesn't make sense. Where's the warning? Not that I want her to suffer, but in my head, it's like there should be some signs that someone is going to die. But I think if I'm being honest, I'd gone to Ghana May 2017 to go and see her. And I'd said to my sister, keep an eye on her because I feel like she's changing. And she said, Okay, I'll do that. So I came back and I told my friend at work at the time, I'm going to return in November to see my grandma. And she's like, why? I said, I feel like I need to. And then, of course, I had all sorts of drama with my house um, and finance became a challenge. So I wasn't able to go back. And then she died in December. Before she did, she said, I want to come to England. I want to come and visit for Christmas. I'm like, that's the wrong time. It's December. It's cold. No, come back in a new year when the weather is a little bit better. She's like, no, I'm ready now. Take me. I'm ready to come back. I'm like, uh, well, you need a visa. You need a ticket. All of that has to be in place. Um, so her death was a shock to me, um, probably much more than I had expected it. So I really wanted to set up a legacy for her. I thought it's really important to me that people don't forget her as the woman she was, for me, she's an inspiration. So it's not just for my generation or the generation after me, but long after me and everybody else after me. I want a story that will impact on other people's life. So hence the whole concept of the foundation. And she was so passionate about education. It's the thing that I remember about my grandma the most. Um, she just needs to see a child during school time out of uniform and she will stop the child to say, 
excuse me, who are you? What's your name? Who's your mum? Where do you live? And she'll follow that child to find out why that child isn't in school because she was denied education, but yet she knew the power and the strength of having good education. And I know she fought for me before I came to England to stay in school when, you know, my father was here, my mother had travelled. It was just her little income that she was using to sustain me to stay in private school. And that was not easy. She sold her stuff to keep me in school, to keep my life as comfortable as possible. So it was just the best thing I can do for her. But actually what happened when I set up the foundation was selfishly, this is going to be a legacy for her to support children's education. I really think looking back, it was much bigger than that. Um, because I think when you go deeper into it, there is so much work to be done and so much lives that can be transformed. And for me, it's transformed my life because it's given me healing and a peace of mind to accept her death because for a long time, I just couldn't accept it. I would look at, you know, pictures from the funeral and I'm like, I don't remember this, but I I was literally there you know I I just blanked everything and went through the emotions of it but I don't remember much of what took place basically so that's incredible and I'm curious there's so much I want to ask you about the foundation and also you know so much about your experience with the grandmother but take me to that moment there where you say you you sort of you blanked it out you Mm. didn't accept it what was life like for you if you didn't accept that that she'd got that she'd gone Now, I just wanted to quickly interrupt this episode to share a quick message with you. Now, I've been hosting these interviews with Inspired by Show for a while now, and I've been loving all of the great feedback from our listeners. And it really means a lot when you all share from listening to these episodes, watching these episodes, share your incredible feedback. And I love that you love it as much as we do. Now, my mission for the Inspired by Show is to inspire others to challenge the norm, share their story, knowing that it's okay to be vulnerable and shock horror, take the mask off and be raw and real. So I have a favor to ask. Can you help me on this mission by sharing this episode with someone who you think needs to hear this message? Maybe there's a friend, a loved one, a colleague, or someone that you know that would really benefit from hearing this inspiring story. If you could do that to help us help even more people to challenge the norm and push themselves out of their own comfort zone, then I'd really appreciate it. So if you haven't already, share this episode with a friend, a loved one, a colleague, or someone that you know would benefit. Now, back to the episode. Where should I start? So I wasn't sleeping and it wasn't a conscious effort for whatever reason, because I needed answers. So the more questions I ask, the more I will spend the evening trying to find information. Um, it's, it's the weirdest thing I can explain, but I'll be on different websites, try to understand things. And I was working for the NHS at the time. So every piece of information I will get, I will go back. There's a respiratory um, clinic where I used to work. And I knew um, some of the senior staff really well. So I will pop along and say, can I just ask you some questions? Um, And I think about, I don't know how many attempts. Um, She dragged in one of the consultants into the room and a head of nursing. So I had very three senior team. I was really excited because I'm thinking, yes, finally, you know, I'll get the answers that I want. I'm like, no, she's good, but something's still missing here. So they all came and they said, you're doing what everybody else does. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, usually when people lose a loved one, they ask questions and they refuse to let go. But what you're looking for doesn't exist. It was just her time. And I'm looking at them thinking, you 
you people can't be clinicians. I'm like, no, no, no. What you're saying is feeling. I want the science. And they're like, and then what, Jen? You can't bring it back. But for some reason, it's like, maybe I could. Maybe you can rewind and go back, which makes no sense. Or maybe I can save someone else's life. Mm -hmm. um, so before I got onto education, I was thinking about what I can do for asthma patients. Um, and they're like, no, your grandmother had asthma for a long time. If she was going to die, she would have died a long time. That's not what killed her. Her death certificate said heart failure. I'm like, nope, can't be that. It has to be something else. Um, so they tried as much as possible to get me to move away from seeking answers and just accept the fact that the person is no more. And it wasn't really landing. So I wasn't sleeping. That was one of the things. But I was able to still show up at work and mm. still deliver. But what was happening internally is when you hide from people and you show them what they want to see. So internally, I wasn't sleeping. I was losing my memory. And I actually didn't put it down to the grief. There was things I couldn't remember. I would do crazy things. I would wake up in the morning and I just don't want to leave the house. So I'll sit on my bed and I'll be thinking. And sometimes I think because I was so tired from lack of sleep, the days and the times will be so mixed up. So I, I would suffer from, um, I suffered from disorientation when I wake up. And it took quite a lot of people. I mean, bless them. I don't think they even realized what they were doing. They would call me in the morning and I'm like, what day is it? Why are you calling me? They're like, Jen, have you left the house? Um, one of my friends, sadly, who passed away, she famously called me one day and she said, I get a sense that you're still in your home. I'm like, yeah, so you're going to be late. I'm like, late to where? They're like, Jen, it's working day. I'm like, no, 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 no. She's like, look at the phone. I'm like, I'm looking. She said, I'm on my way to work and I want to see you. And, and I was still arguing with her. So she's like, okay, get in the shower put the phone on speaker, get in the shower. So she took me through it. I got dressed. I got in my car. She was still talking. And I think it got to the point she started shouting at me. She's like, snap out of it. Whatever it is that you're doing, I need you to snap out of it because you're a strong woman and this isn't you. I'm like, okay, I'm on at 8.13, 17 miles an hour. I'm driving, everything perfectly fine, but my mind was elsewhere mm. and it's because she was shouting to me that I literally snapped out of it so there was that not sleeping pretending everything it's okay and then I think maybe because of the trauma of it I started to suffer from um, palpitation I would literally have to hold my hands on occasion because I can feel my heart beating out of my chest and I've ended up in A&E a few times until they said, we think you suffered a trauma. And I'm like, no, not suffered any trauma. I'm fine, but something is wrong. So I got wired with an ECG for 24 hours and they came back like, yeah, something is wrong, but we think you need counseling. But for now, we will put you on medication because you've got a irregular heartbeat. So that was what was happening on the clinic, clinical side, but I wasn't able to share that with people that are closest to me, I would do silly things like drive to other people's homes um, to offer help and support. So I have the flip side of, I don't want to leave the house. And then when I do, I don't want to come back to the house. Mm. So I'll drive around in circles, doing everything by going back into the house. And one of the um, craziest things I think I did was, um, I would get in the car and I'll find myself driving to my younger sister's house. I can't even explain it to you. And I won't really realize until I'm literally in her house. And then I'll drive back, sorry, without telling her. 
And I remember an occasion where I had my niece and my nephew in the car. And my niece, bless her, was sat at the front of the car. And I'm not quite sure. I can't remember where we were going. But I drove to my sister's house. And my niece immediately said, Auntie, it's okay. If you're sad, I'll look after you. So I remember looking at her thinking, why do you think I'm sad? She said, I think you are. I'm like, no, I'm fine. And my nephew piped up and said, it's okay, auntie, take left. Because we were, that's it, we were going to Asda. They wanted something from Asda. But I, I don't know how many times I circled back to my sister's house. And he's like, it's okay, auntie, go straight, turn left, turn right, until we got to Asda. Now park the car, now get out of the car. So there was that happening mm. at the background. I think that's what happens when you don't deal with grief. It can manifest in other areas. Work-wise, mm. it was absolutely fine. But the minute work finishes, yeah. all the crazy behaviors, if I may call it that, comes um, to play. I'll be cooking 3 a.m., 5 a.m. until my neighbor one day knock on my door and said, Jen, what's with the cooking? I'm like, oh, you know, can't sleep. She's like, oh, you've been doing this for a while. <laughs> Wow. Bless him. Um, he's a retired black cab. So he used to start his work really, really early. So all oh, your lights are on. I'm like, oh, yeah, I need the lights. It's like, but why? I'm like, because I can't sleep. It's like, do you want to come over? I'm like, no, that won't help. I said, I just, I just need the lights. So unfortunately, one of the um, aftermath of that grief is that I now can't sleep until there's some kind of daylight. So either I open all my blinds so that there's daylight coming in from outside I just can't stay in darkness I can't explain mm. it and it's one of the things that's um, a legacy poor legacy but I need to mm. work on that isn't it amazing how there's so many things that we experience that some people would look at use the word crazy in your words we would think it's normal to us mm. at the time we'd well, of course I'm functioning. I'm fine. You know, mm. you know, your niece and your nephew. And it, isn't it amazing how sometimes it's other people see it, but we don't. Mm. And I've, I've experienced grief in that way, but I've had all the same symptoms when I was diagnosed with clinical depression mm. because I was in denial. Yeah. And it was like, I, I was grieving the person I thought I was. And I was going through a stage of grief exactly as you described mm. it. And I, I remember being like, just so like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everyone was like, are you sure you're fine? I was like, I'm totally fine. Why would I fine? Why do you think I'm not fine? And we're so high functioning at it. We're so great yeah. that professionally, it looks fantastic. <laughs> and then we've got all the unique things that we're going through personally, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I find it so fascinating how, you know, like you said, it's something you didn't know. It was, un, it was unknown when mm -hmm. she passed away. We seek validation we mm -hmm. seek information we seek to understand mm -hmm. because we think we want to control that was mm -hmm. what i learned mm -hmm. it was like i needed to understand it mm -hmm. coming back down to when you experienced that so when did the awareness kick in and, and how did you overcome that to the place now where you're you're mm -hmm. sat here and you know you've created this incredible legacy for your grandma oh that is a really um it's a straightforward question but a difficult question to answer i think it took several people some strangers to intervene so I give you um, an example I had gone into next so the other thing I was doing I ordered loads of stuff I'm not sure why um, I'd gone into next I just ordered loads of stuff picked it and I said to the um, gentleman at the cashier um, where's my card it's like I gave it to you I'm like no you didn't calmly and he was very calm as well and very very respectful so I'm like, okay, so where is it? If you gave it to me, he said, you put it in your purse and you put it back in your bag. So I took out the purse. I went through everything in my purse, including the card. 
I couldn't recognize the card. Um, he looked quite young, but I think he was quite, he, he was thinking really quick on his feet. So he re recognized that something was wrong and he was super, super calm. And I remember thinking, gosh, your customer service is amazing. Um, so <laughs> we, you know, he watched me go through my purse. I'm like, it's not there. And it's like, look again. I kept looking and it's like, you know what? Why don't you take a seat? And I'm going to get a security guy to come and have a look at the CCTV. I'm not sure what conversation to on. So he came and he said, how did you get here? I'm like, I drove. What a weird question. It's like, how are you going to get home? I'm like, same way I came. It's like, right, okay. I understand you're looking for your card. I'm like, yeah. So do you mind if I look into your bag? I'm like, yeah. So I emptied everything. Can I look into your purse? Yeah. I'm like, but it's not there. It's like, can I look? Like, yeah. Then he took the next card. And I think it was at that point that I woke up. Um, I'm like, oh, it must have gone on for over an hour. Seriously. Um, busy store. Um, but, you know, I realized then that something wasn't quite right, but I wasn't necessarily ready to accept that I needed to go and explore and get help. I thought maybe it's just a one-off because I'm tired. I've not been sleeping. Mm -hmm. I think I was possibly having an hour here and there. Um, so it was manifesting in, in other ways as well. So I, I got in the car, I drove home. And I remember a separate incident with another HR colleague, um, I think three years after my grandmother's death. I'm not quite sure what we were even talking about, how we got on the subject. And she said to me, we used to work for a mental health hospital and she said to me, don't take this the wrong way, but think you've had some kind of breakdown. I'm like, maybe. But a lot of it is because I'm not sleeping and I'm really tired. And she's like, maybe you should think about getting some kind of counseling. I'm like, okay. And then I pushed it away and I remember someone else speaking to me about counseling and even my GP giving me telephone numbers and I'm thinking, I just want to sleep. Why don't you people understand this? Uh, and then my GP is like, I can give you a sleeping tablet. You know, we've given you something for your heart. We can prescribe a sleeping tablet. But what you really need is counseling. I'm like, nope, don't need counseling. And I think, I can't remember who asked me the question, why are you so afraid of counseling? I said, oh, how do I answer that? First of all, I don't need counseling. Second of all, I'm afraid because the person that usually will pick me up is the person who's gone. And I think it was that point I realized that she's actually gone. And actually, I think counseling would have opened a kind of worm. So I wasn't prepared to go there. Um, and the other thing I need to say is um, I used to speak to my grandma on my way to work. So I find myself in that routine, that structure, usually when I'm getting my clothes iron and I'll call her. So it, the call will go through before I re remember that she can't answer the phone and that went on until COVID and of course everybody's working from home so I didn't have that routine that's how I overcame that um, so the awareness came from different people but it was really after I think the second lockdown maybe 2022 not the second lockdown when things were normalized and people had to go back into work that I remember saying to um, somebody you know there's all these counseling for um, being um, colleagues to access and it was specifically around COVID and my first session instead of talking about COVID 
I'm not even sure how we got onto the subject of my grandmother passing on. And she said, I think I'm going to refer you for help. And I'm like, oh gosh, here we go again. Um, but I decided to go and seek help because I realized I needed help. Um, mm -hmm. I think she wasn't trained to deal with what I brought on the table. And I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't go to see her for grief counseling. I just basically wanted to talk about some of the anxieties I picked up around COVID. I think people took it for granted when you've been at home forever um, and all of a sudden you have to go on a train and people are sneezing. Maybe it wasn't just me. It's like, <laughs> yep <laughs> maybe I don't want to be here um, and then you think about all sorts I mean I come from a family of sickle cell patients I also struggle with my blood so for me my immune system is already always low I didn't want to be in an environment where I could severely compromise my health and of course I think um, when we went into the first lockdown and plan untrained uh, what I was doing is I was booking our staff to be COVID tested simple enough but it wasn't because I had people who were seriously sick with COVID who could barely breathe and that was quite difficult to deal with so that had an impact but it was a delayed impact so I did, by the time I realized they had a traumatic impact I think it was already too late and I, I had arrived at a train station to take a train and all of a sudden it felt like a panic attack because someone had sneezed. I know it sounds terrible, wow. but someone has sneezed like, oh, oh no, oh no, 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 no. I can't, I can't be here. Heart, heart patient, I can't be here. Um, low blood, no, nah, I can't be here. This is not good for me. So that's why I'd access um, the counseling, just to talk around what's reality, what's feeling, and how I can get navigate around that. And then we end up into this whole grief. And she said, I think all of this is linked, Jen. So if you can get that help, Mm. then perhaps you can be on your way to healing. Wow. And that's to answer your question in a long kind of, a, yeah. Yeah. But it's it's all completely relevant, isn't it? I think it's, I, one of the things I love from what I've experienced when I've overcome grief mm. is it's never, we usually have a one, what I would call a breakthrough moment or a light bulb moment, which I refer to as my light bulb moment, where it's like the denial I was in, mm -hmm. the obliviousness I was in, mm -hmm. like that, those walls I'd built came crumbling down. Mm -hmm. But there was never, I don't believe it's ever just one thing. It's like one thing starts it and then slowly it starts to burst that bubble, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now, um, question for you, which might be a bit of a direct question, but hear me out. Did the counselling work for you? Yes and no. So it was a group counselling. Um, and actually, yes, in the sense that it validated some of the feelings. Because where I thought I was going crazy, I was losing my mind. And I was scared to tell people my memory mm. wasn't as good as it needed to be. Because I'm thinking this could be early Alzheimer's disease. I couldn't even go to the GP about it. Going through, I think, the first session, I recognized that most of what I was feeling was completely normal as part of the grieving process. So I think that gave me a sense of peace. Um, because there's nothing worse than feeling as if something bad, clinically bad is happening to you. So to have that sense of peace gave me, I think, the strength to go for the second session. Because when we started, I'm thinking, I'm not talking. I didn't even want to be here. Um, but by the end of it, I was actually looking forward to the second session. And I think it lasted for about six weeks. But I concluded with the six weeks thinking, actually, what I need is having that one-on-one. Mm. because 
in as much as it's great to be in a group session and people can share their stories and you can relate and connect. I didn't really get to share how I was feeling um, because time was also of the essence. So there wasn't the time to go into everything that was going on in my mind. But it was great to have that six, six sessions to start off with. I still haven't had that one on one, but I think I'm in a better place, mm, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. The reason I asked, and I love, Jen, how honest you are, because when I was going through it, I remember there was like an eight week waiting list mm-hmm. for any sort of counseling or therapy of any sort. And I remember I got so impatient. I ended up like one of my family members is is a trained coach. So we kind of did a few unofficial sessions. So by the time I got to the counseling and the therapy, I was kind of like, I remember just being there going, oh. and I've heard so many horror stories of so many people not getting value from mm-hmm. things like this. But I think it depends on how open and how ready you are. Some of us are at different stages, right? And I think also it depends on how much you've experienced in your life already. And I don't mean this to sound harsh, but I think if it's the first time you've ever had a struggle in life, mm-hmm. it can be like the hardest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't mind you, if you don't mind me saying, you've already experienced so much in your life before this point, you know, I mean, coming over from Ghana to here and, <laughs> and all of that, that, you know, mm-hmm. you describe what the, I know of you, I think there was probably ways in which you've built up resilience, which maybe we hadn't even realised. You know what? It's absolutely the case. I think what's good about me is also what's bad about me. So my way of dealing with anything is to just get on with it. So most of the time, maybe I'm halfway through whatever it is I'm getting on with, then I'm thinking it's okay sometimes to say no, it's okay to say I'm not feeling the best. So I think for me, I don't like the word trauma. Well, I've come a long way now, but in the past, the word trauma is like, no, don't feed that emotion mm. find a way and start sidestep around that emotion because the more you dwell on something the worse it becomes but I think that's not a healthy attitude I think sometimes you've got to recognize what you're feeling allow yourself to go through it and heal but if you sidestep it sometimes what you're doing is not dealing with that mm. and I think I've spent majority of my life maybe getting on or so I thought just go on with it you know, don't wallow, just get on with it. And what I had done is not deal with things throughout my life that should have been dealt with. And they were actually, you know, pretty traumatic mm-hmm. um, experience and actually didn't even sp- spoke, speak about them because, again, it's like, don't give it time, don't feed it, just leave it alone. It happened in the past, pick up your basket or pick up whatever you need to pick mm-hmm. up and just move on. And just embrace the life that's ahead of you rather than what's behind you. Mm. But I think sometimes you need to go back and you need to learn from what's happened in the past in order to be better Mm. when you're going forward. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I I totally relate because sometimes there's things that you don't want to unpick. I'm still very much when I say to my loved ones, there are still things in my life I'm not ready to unpick yet from my childhood and various things like that. But I think when you're an adult that you've think clearly and you've been through certain trauma or whatever words you want to use for it, we tend to know when we're ready. You know, it's like onion layers. Mm-hmm. You start to go down and you think, okay, I'm ready now mm-hmm. to go through this. And coming back down to your experience, mm-hmm. often when we've been through something that's built the resilience, mm-hmm. we've got more of awareness of it. It's the it's the obliviousness at first, I think, is a challenge. Mm-hmm. So I know obviously a huge part of your life was your grandmother from her support when you were in Ghana with her. Tell us about what it was like growing up there and then coming over here in this whole new world. Honestly, I think um, 
people probably that knew me as a child would say I was a little bit spoiled. My grandma, really. I was the first grandchild um, in the family to her as well. And I think my understanding of love comes from my grandma because she didn't give birth to me and she didn't need to show me the depth of love that she did. Going to school, school drop. Um I wouldn't necessarily say my grandmother was responsible for homework or things like that, but their consistency was my grandma. Um, and no disrespect to my parents, but I got a lot of consistency for my grandma. So she was always there. Even when I came to this country, for me, she's my rock. You know, I couldn't think of a world without my grandma. She's this strong, amazing woman that can do everything. So growing up under her was great. People was like, oh, did you not miss out because of your parents? I'm like, actually not. It was a total blessing. You know, I got to see and understand a world from her lens. And I think that made me a better person. Mm. So I lacked for nothing. But I watched my grandma literally. She would take her stuff and sell it so that I can have the best of everything. I know if I come home and I'm upset, for example, um, and it's not always in what I say. She knows when I'm not talking, it means, and I can talk for England. Most people don't know me will say that. <laughs> but she knows when I'm quiet, it means that I'm processing something. Mm. That usually means I'm unhappy about something. So she will ask me, what's wrong? You know, don't be upset. Whatever it is, it shall pass. Tell me what it is and I'll make every effort. Mm. to like meet your needs so it was great being with my grandma but of course life didn't stay the same um there's a whole lot of different story with how my father left Ghana it wasn't by choice um it was a way to survive um so another day story and my mother was um in another country at that time and I was asked to move in with my paternal grand grandma with the rest of my father's siblings so just to give you a description of how some of the houses are in Ghana this is like a massive house with maybe about nine bedrooms nine big bedrooms and a big compound so there was loads of us in that house but I had come from my comfort zone into even though they were family it was foreign it's a foreign land is the best way I can describe it so I think I put on an act in order to survive because it wasn't the me that was under my grandma that presented there. It, part of it was there, but it wasn't the fully me. And that had been my life. You know, if I'm in this situation, well, what do I need to survive? Can I act through that? I should have been mm. an actress, I think. Can I act through that and survive it? So, you know, I was um, living there because my parents were not around. Um, my grandma fought to reject the whole idea, the whole concept of moving away from her. And there was a whole lot of family politics around the decision to move away. But the agreement was I would spend every holidays with her. And I got in trouble once because I got really, really sick. And when you don't have mum and dad, nobody was really paying attention to me. And I think eventually, maybe a week or so later, I was getting worse. So somebody went to the pharmacies and brought me some medication, gave me enough strength for going to public transport, went back to my grandmother's house. Unfortunately, she had gone to work, so she wasn't there. So I left the message, said, please tell her to come and get me because I'm really sick. So my grandma came and this is how I can demonstrate, you know, her always going the extra mile. She picked me up from 
I would just call it my father's house, just for ease of um, illustration. And then took me back to where she lived. She had a look at me, she's like, no. My grandmother has a way of, it's interesting, I would say this, but she would look at your eyes, she would look at maybe your color, your body color changing or whatever, to be able to know how serious you are. Mm. so she was taking me to a hospital and we didn't make it so we ended up in a little clinic and the nurse was shouting at her because they needed to admit me because I was so um sick and they're like why would you wait till she's almost dying to bring us you know to bring her to us and she's like I just picked her up but they were not having it so my grandma burst into tears because all she can hear was this child you brought this child when she's almost at death's door we're just going to try and do the best that we can mm. for her. So she was told to go home and leave me there and she just couldn't. And I have this vivid and um, vivid memory of her sobbing because she's thinking she just needs someone to check her over, give her some medication. Little did she know that I was actually going to be admitted and it was a little bit of hit, touch and go. Um, so they told her to go home. She came back several hours later, probably about two hours. She had soup, she brought soup. Um, and eventually they stabilized me and they said she could, she could take me home and just keep me under observation. So when you say, what is it like? That's basically what it is like. And there were moments where, um, this was back in the days before mobile phones. We have done a recorded tape to send it over to my father to say, look, she's done the best that she can. I'm in school. I need this. I need this. I need that. Could you please send something? Um, so yes, my, my grandmother was my protector. She was also my, I would say, educator in certain ways. Um, I actually didn't realize it until she died because all these things that she used to say, I find myself saying them because this is full of wisdom. Mm. Like, can she just come back? So I can hear more, so I can know more, so I can say, you know, when you used to say this, actually now I'm listening, you know, this is what yeah. I, can, I can understand that now. And I see the wisdom in what you're saying. And I think my inspiration is to try and be as good as she was to the generation after me. Yeah, so inspiring. And that's why I love what you're doing with the foundation. Just out of curiosity, so how old were you when you came to the UK? I was 15. Um wow. And I remember going to the airport and my grandma was more um, like, you know, what what am I going to wear? You know, she's going to England. She's got to, you know, it's, you know, that generation. So she's got to be all kitted. Um, so she was using her savings to try and buy me this outfit um, for me to wear. And she wanted to make sure that my suitcase had all of the right stuff, including the Bible. Um, so we got to the airport and for whatever reason, I didn't have the excitement that everybody did of coming to England. I just realized I'm leaving her and I'm leaving everything I know behind. So I started crying and a lady in the queue said to me, but why are you crying? You're going to England. I'm like, I'm leaving them. They're not coming with me. So for me, it's a sad moment. Of course, I came to England. I, I remember seeing my father at the airport, he had not seen me for, I think the last time he saw me before then I was six. So probably close to 10 years. Um, and he was shocked. I was shocked. Both of us have changed. Um, and it was a, a nice kind of moment to be together. But of course, it's the, the layers of transition that um, I don't deal with or I haven't done good. I hadn't been, I haven't really been good at dealing with is that 
I went from my grandmother's house to my father's house, back to my grandmother's house, and then on the way to the UK. But I was coming to a home, not just to live with my father, but to live with my stepmom and my half-siblings. And that was another transition. So you, there was that. There was living in England. And it wasn't the England I was old. Um, so I was sold the romantic side of England. You know, it was all about Princess Diana, Prince Charles. Um, I think John Major was a prime minister at the time. Fireplace. Uh, snow. Yeah, no. <laughs> do you know how many people I speak to by the way just side point on this I speak to so many people on this podcast who are not from I'm born and bred here and obviously I wasn't born in the UK but I was born in an island near the UK so it's very British very similar and the amount of people that I meet that come to, like yourself yeah. honestly sat in the same chair as you and they say this isn't the England I was sold you know I thought the men were charming and I thought you know you know, everywhere it snowed and there was fireplaces yeah, and that kind yeah, of like yeah. very like bridge kind yeah, of vibe. Or the men, the, 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 or what you, the Britain you saw in, you know, movies and everything yeah, else. So yeah. I, I remember um, we we used to live in Stratford, um, but the closest station to us was Plaster. So I remember we got to Plaster and I remember looking at my dad. I'm like, are we going to take another plane? He's like, no. So I'm looking around thinking, really? Like, I mean... No disrespect to people that live around Plaster, but Plaster Station, I mean, you can imagine you got on a train, a plane, got to Heathrow, Heathrow Airport is, I mean, back then the airport in Ghana was quite small. It's a little bit better now, but it's still small in comparison to Heathrow. And then you got on a train and then you get to Plaster and you're looking around. And then we came out of Plaster, we got to the house, I'm like, why are all the rooms so small? You know, you, you're <laughs> expecting a massive house. It's like, little front court. Small rooms, small everything. Well, small in comparison to what I was used to. So it was a little bit of an eye opener. And I'm like, I don't think I want to be here. But of course, I had come to stay with my father. And my father had worked really hard. He didn't want to leave a child behind. He had worked really hard to get all of us here. My sisters came before me. And I think when we arrived, they didn't know we were coming. So they had come back from school. Um, and their sister, I forgot to tell me about the two tube strike today, was staring at me like, oh, hello. And then she's like, do you want to go to the shop? And I'm looking at her thinking, do you mind speaking slowly? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. And of course she walked in thinking, saying she's so hot, open all the windows. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm so cold. Um, <laughs> Oh, oh, the difference, right? Oh, the difference. Oh, the difference. I wasn't saying anything because, again, I'm going to present a different side, mm. the side that will blend in and become like a ghost to survive in that environment. So that was the person mm. that I presented, and I lived with that person until I went to university. And then, okay, here's a different mm. Jennifer, you know. So, it, wow. Yeah. How did you find the real Jennifer after wearing these masks as after, in your words, like adapting to survive? Yeah. At what point did you find the real you? University. I think my first semester of university, actually the first week, I remember um, a couple of people I met at Freshness Week. They, I had given them my address as she did, a teenager, had no fear. Oh, they look like me. They look like nice people. They're from London. Okay, I live there. So they just turn up. And what was I doing? I was reading work of psychology. They're like, seriously, this is like your fourth day at university. You're a fresher, freshener and you're reading work of psychology. Come on, come on. We're all going out. Come on. Um, so I had freedom for the first time. 
And I had to think about what that freedom meant to me. And, um, you know, I'll give a shout out to my pastor. He had spoken to me to say, you're going to an environment where there will be no mom and dad. You are going to be the boss of yourself. You need to think about how you use that freedom. The first couple of days, totally honest, I wasn't paying attention to anything he said. But then there was a question of, okay, who am I? I'm now here. Do I want to play a role and be somebody else for a new group of people? Or do I really want to take time out to discover who I am? And actually, I like the person I was. I'm like, no, I'm going to hold on to this Jennifer. You know, yes, there's mm-hmm. the Jennifer that will adapt or act if I need to. But I think I know that I'm kind, I'm friendly, and I think I know my mind. Um, so when I was in uni, one friend in particular said to me, you can be very dry, Jennifer, but that's a compliment because once you make up your mind, you stick to it. And I said, I take my time to make my mind. So when I do, what you see is the person that I can only describe as full of energy, go-getter. And then when you try to tell me, don't do something, I don't back down because most of the time I will ask myself two questions. What's the worst that could happen if this doesn't turn out the way I want it to? And I'll embrace it. So if I'm halfway through it and somebody comes and say, maybe you should take a different direction, it's not that I hadn't considered the West. It's because I'm convinced of what I'm doing because I've taken the time Mm. to get to that point. So I don't tend to react in a moment which sometimes really annoys people, especially in a conflict, because I'm the person that will come back a week later and say, "Um, you know, last week when you said this, well, I've now had time to think about it. Um, and this is what I think. And I remember my line manager one day looked at me and said, really, Jennifer, that was a week ago. I'm like, well, now I've had time to deal with it. So now mm-hmm. I want you to hear what I think. So it does frustrate people. I'm aware of it. But I think I have a delayed reaction to things, mainly because I soak information mm-hmm. and I go away to reflect on it. And I want to make sure that I'm not reacting with emotions. Yeah, And yeah. I'm okay with that. Yeah. But also that ties in really well to what you do in your professional world, right? Because when you work in HR, you can't react with emotions. When you run a foundation, you know, you've got to have the entrepreneur hat on and the business Mm -hmm. hat on. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to see how that part of Jennifer has come into Mm -hmm. what you're doing now. So obviously I've got so much more I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about this foundation. So Mm -hmm. tell us about what you're doing now with the foundation Mm -hmm. with the legacy of your grandmother. Right. So um, last year, the plan was build, restore, maintain classrooms. Um, and that didn't happen. But this year, the drive is to get it out of the out out of the ground. Mm. I went to Ghana November, late November to December 2022, and I left a school with a promise that I will return to try and rebuild some classrooms. Um, we had renovated a library through the um, foundation, and we had given out notebooks, pens, pencils. So all the things that you take for granted. But for a child, it's a difference between remaining in school or dropping mm. out of school. And then we had donated clothes. Um, I won't say all of that plan was perfectly executed. But the plan is to return this year to do more of that. So I've already shipped stuff ahead. and I've received more donations. And actually, I've had a few people knocking on my door to say, you're going to do any fundraising event this this year because we really want to come along and we want to support this because we think you're doing something great. So I genuinely want to go back and try and help as many kids as possible. Um, And if there's a child I can support financially, then, you know, to stay in school, I try and do that. But the aim, the focus is trying 
maintain some classrooms, mm -hmm. restore them so that they look like a classroom. At the moment, most of them um, barely have a window, barely have a door. The flooring is absolutely shocking and furnitures that they sit on are broken. So in terms of health and safety, it's it's huge. Um, and I think I will feel a sense of great achievement if I can return and even just do one classroom. So if I can get the fund, um, fundraising event this summer out of the way mm. and go back and do what I set out to do, I think that'll be a huge um, wow. achievement for the foundation. Yeah. That's so inspiring. Jennifer, I'm curious from your perspective, because you are so driven by this mission. You know, mm -hmm. since I met you, it's one of the first things that we've talked about. You are really driven by impact. Mm -hmm. What do you think we all need to do more of in this world so that these foundations aren't needed? It's mm -hmm. just, you know, it's a given or there's more of us actually helping. Because that's the bit that sort of pisses me off about this world is it's it's all very much please donate, please donate, which I love, by mm -hmm. the way. Mm -hmm. But what can we do before that point, before the classrooms get ruined, before the windows break, before the doors fall off or the floor gets bad? What What do you think we can do to actually make a real impact? I think someone else had asked me, asked me this question because, of course, building the classroom is kind of like sticking a plaster on the issue. It's, it's not actually addressing the root cause mm. of the problem. And for me, with that particular um, environment, is going back to my understanding poverty. And some of the challenges that comes with and some of the actions that people take as a result of trying to put food on the table and, and, and keep a roof over their head. So it's a complex subject and I think it needs carefully planning because the, there is the sense that some of these women that are giving birth need some kind of family, family planning, but it's not a simple um, as that because I my eyes I will say have been open a little bit because you think well if you had one child and you can barely feed that child don't for God's sake don't have the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth but the reality is it's like a, a snowball effect so I would talk about this is probably not the most comfortable thing to say but in the school this is a primary school there are children that drop out and some are girls and the reason they drop out is mainly because they've come from big families and there isn't money even for a school uniform or for food. So they become victims and they become vulnerable to predators, basically that preys on them, that will offer them everything in exchange for sexual favors. And then they get them pregnant. They don't even protect themselves. So I think you have to address the mindset first. And it's not just about here's a condom, here's a pill. It's it's much deeper than that. Mm -hmm. So when I set off, I thought I was just dealing with if someone needs, um, if there's a barrier, for example, if it's a uniform, we'll supply the uniform so they can stay in school. Um, if it's transportation, we would do that. But what I didn't realize is how deeper it goes. And it, you're talking about generations upon generations. So mum drops out of school because someone's promised them food. Daughter becomes the second victim. Daughter then gives birth to the next generation and it just carries on. And unfortunately, sometimes some of these dropouts are also male and they are taken out of school to go and help, I don't know, trade or something so that there are more um, income streams coming into their family. And then at some point they will return. So I remember this um, British lady who came to the event in 2022 and the first time she encountered the student, she said, these are adults mixing with children. I'm like, 
Don't get too sentimental because we will be here the whole day. This is the problem. If you haven't finished primary school, it's not a system whereby there is another kind of hybrid where these dropouts can then come back and continue. So they come back into the primary school. So you've got a teenager mixing with a child, basically. And that also brings another problem. So I think it goes, to be honest, it goes back to poverty. And I think education is a way out of poverty. And if you give somebody an education, one person from one family, then you're getting to the bottom of resolving some of these mm. challenges. Because education gives you awareness. It gives you the opportunity to think about how you can make life better and not stay and remain in the same circumstances or situation that you find yourself yeah totally I think there's definitely a part of knowing what the options are and knowing there's always a choice I'm obviously never lived and breathed that experience so I'm just saying from my perspective but I think a lot of it comes down to educating them on that there are other ways and you know like you know we're saying it like you know one's the victim and then they give birth to the next victim and it's that kind of cycle it's Mm -hmm. if people haven't been shown another way how can we possibly expect them Mm -hmm. to find a new way you know they just think that's the path they're dealt and the the cards they're dealt and they just need to continue down that path so Mm -hmm. it is about educating and like you said more than just the classroom the mindset and and the changes so yeah it's so so inspiring and I've said this to you before if there's anything we can do to support the foundation I'm super excited for you I think it's amazing what you're doing (laughs) and honestly Jennifer for someone when I met you who I believe to be a HR consultant which you are and your business is booming by the way <laughs> Thank you. but for me what I find so inspiring about you is the reason you have your business is to help you grow the foundation yeah. you know a lot of people I come across and there's no haters in the room here you know they are all for growing the business the status the money the da 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 for you, it's like every penny you make in your business mm-hmm. helps you take the foundation to a new level, which is, yeah. is so, so inspiring. I was helped. My grandmother made a sacrifice for me. And I want to make sure that I give what I can to other generations that can then go on and make an impact for the generations mm-hmm. after them. I know it sounds a bit cheesy and a bit horny, but genuinely, I think... What I have found from my grandmother's passing is a purpose. Like, because the the question, there's got to be a meaning to life, was playing on my mind. It's like, mm. well, you can't just be born and then live and then die. What's the point? No, we might as well, you know, die now. And I had those dark thoughts. Um, you know, it, it's taken me a while to be able to say, but the, I had moments where I wake up like, well, what's the point having a shower? What's the point getting to, what's the point of anything? We are all going to die. Mm. So why delay just go now, kind of? Um, and interestingly enough, the reason why I was having the dark thoughts, which was my grandmother's death, was also the reason why I got out of it because I remembered that she was a strong woman, that she didn't take the easy way out. Like, no, I've got to live for something. My life has to count for something. It's nice to have a nice car, a nice house, but there's a lot more that I can do because she did a lot more. You know, a woman with no formal qualification did a whole lot more. So... If my state is elevated as a result of what she did, I can achieve a lot more than she did because of her. Mm. So hopefully I can make some kind of impact in my life or have a little bit more meaning than just yeah. being a wonderful HR person. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> Honestly, Jennifer, and it is, it's fantastic to hear everything you're working on. We've been so inspired by you today, which just felt incredible. Now, uh, before we wrap up this uh, conversation, we have the final four, which we ask all our guests in our brand new season for the show. So a couple of questions for you before I wrap it up. Tend to be quick fire, so okay. quick as possible. Um, 
with a bit of background would be fantastic. So first question for you. I think I might know the answer, but we'll see. (laughs) Um, Who has inspired you on your journey and why? Oh, my grandma. Yeah, I I was going to say, I was like, after everything, she sounds like such an inspiring person. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. She used to say my heart when she sees me. She said, my heart is here. Well, she was my heart and she still is my heart. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so beautiful. And um, obviously, as you know, Mm -hmm. part of the Inspired By show, we run a book publishing company called Inspired By Publishing. So I always love to ask about books that have inspired people as well. So what book have you read that's inspired you on your journey or helped you? You know, it's weird because I love to read, but I would say, and something that people don't know about me is I actually also preach because I'm a woman of faith. So I read the Bible a lot more than most books. So the Bible, for me, is my inspiration. There's just too many stories. And I think over the years, now that I'm living a life of looking back and accepting that certain things happen in life that are traumatic, I can relate and connect a lot more to things that are in the Bible. And it can make it makes a lot more sense and it has a more deeper spiritual impact. So yeah, the Bible. Yeah, wow. Thank you. And if you were to write a book, what book would you write and why? I'll write a book about myself. I think I've just give you given you a little snippets of things that have been through, but there's a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And it's not just writing a book because I feel like writing a book. I think it's about I have a message out there that I think someone else can be elevated by and maybe they can feel that anything is possible because I really genuinely believe that anything is possible that you shouldn't allow circumstances to shape your destiny. Mm. Um, and you just need to sit down and own things. Think bad things happens to you just as much as good things happens. Just need to, okay, if you need to wallow, feel sorry for yourself. Don't stay there too long, but just embrace the experience and focus on what, what you want to do and not allow mm. that to hold you back. Oh, I love it. Can't wait to read that book. <laughs> I think I need that book. One day. It's fantastic. <laughs> one day. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. And last one for you, lovely. Mm-hmm. Who do you know with an inspiring story that you think we should have on the show next? Oh, her name is Marsha Powell. Um, her story is kind of similar to mine. So she lost her mother um, and she set up this amazing charity. I'm actually a trustee for this charity. And it's all about um, raising female leaders from I think the targets from age eight to 22 and they've got they've been running for about 13 years now and they've managed to employ people um out of you know their grief they've set up a foundation that is not just raising female leaders but it's also employing people and giving people jobs so yeah wow what an inspiring mission another very inspiring woman so yeah I would absolutely love to have her on the show Thank you, Jennifer. It's been so good to chat to you. I, honestly, I feel like I know you so well anyway, but this conversation has been so good for me to get to know you even more mm-hmm. and learn more about your grandmother's story as well. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's another way to keep her memory alive. So thank you for having me on the show. No problem. Well, wow, what an episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. I don't know about you, but I got shivers when Jennifer was talking about her grandmother and the impact and what she's doing with the foundation is so inspiring. We'll make sure we include the details in the description and the show notes. So if you want to have a look at the foundation, you can. And obviously anything you can do to help, we would love your support. Now, if you haven't already, if you are watching on YouTube, make sure that you put a comment in the section sharing what has been your biggest takeaway from this episode. What has Jennifer shared in this interview that has really inspired you? Comment on this uh, video and let us know. Also, if you are listening on any of the audio platforms or you're watching on YouTube and you haven't yet followed the show, make sure you do so you don't miss out on our next inspiring guest. I'll see you next week. Bye.